0: Welcome to the Church Times Podcast. Try 10 issues for £10, or two months' access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. This week, Malcolm Guytes talked about the faith of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the anniversary of whose death was marked on Monday, 25th of July. Part of this interview featured on the very first episode of the Church Times podcast in 2017, shortly after the publication of Malcolm's book Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, published by Hodder and Stoughton. After the interview, Malcolm reads a sonnet that he wrote for Coleridge, from St Michael's Highgate in North London, where the poet is buried. Malcolm's most recent book is Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God, published by Canterbury Press, and available from the Church Times Bookshop. Coleridge as a figure, is he an obvious person for a Christian poet and theologian to engage with?
1: Well, now now that I know his work, I would say that he was clearly uh, someone that a a Christian thinker and poet could engage with. But I have to say that the popular view of him doesn't really take much cognizance of of his faith and of the way that's deeply rooted and kind of almost watermarked through most of what he writes. So I I found him uh, a deeply compelling figure. And uh, in fact, when I was some years ago working on my book, Faith, Hope and Poetry, which is really uh, kind of addressed to literary critics so that they would understand the spiritual depth of the poetry that they um, like to chop up and handle. But it was also addressed to theologians and say, look you need to engage your imagination. The imagination is a truth-bearing faculty. And I tried to work out, how can I really ground that? And I read around and I suddenly realised that he was Coleridge, whom I'd known or thought I'd known all my life. And I began to read his, uh, his essay on poetry, considered as a fine art, the Shakespeare criticism, and then these magnificent chapters on imagination in biographia literaria. And I realised that there it is, staring you in the face. Coleridge roots our own capacity to know through the imagination with the divine imagination. And he sees the imagination with which we perceive the world. He he says it is an echo in the finite mind of the eternal and infinite act of creation in the divine. That's dynamite. That's an amazing thing he's actually saying. Anybody engaged in a moment of artistic apprehension and intuition is echoing the way God made the world and helping to see it. now we've got a really big agenda at the moment particularly when lots of people are leaving as it were or more mistrustful of more formal and organized religion and turning more and more to the world of the arts to get their meaning that's quite understandable but of course they're missing out on something crucial they're missing out on the core of the gospel and on you know christ's death for them so we need to ask ourselves how can we say look we're dealing with the same things and here's a theologian who has rooted the imaginative and the artistic imagination in the divine creativity—that's got to be important for us now in the twenty-first century.
0: I mean, you said scholars of Coleridge have backpedaled on his Christianity. Mm. Why? Why do you to some
1: that degree? It I think I think there are a variety of reasons. I think we're all blinded by the spirit of our age. You know, we're in a we're in a liberal secular age where we're trying to, as it were, reimagine or reinvent things, and we're trying to dispose of what we regard as of ob- the obsolete. And for a lot of people, that includes the entire historical baggage, as they would see it, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, nevertheless, no literary critic can do without Coleridge. Coleridge practically reinvented Shakespeare for us, gave us a whole new way of reading Shakespeare. He's the founder, in a way, of almost every school of literary criticism there is. Um, He's an essential figure uh, in literary history. So there has been a temptation to some degree to, as it were, soften the edges or just to filter out his Christianity, as though it was some kind of background 19th century religious noise, and you could get to the core of Coleridge without it. I understand why they did that, because they felt that religion was something to apologise for, and they didn't want to have to apologise for Coleridge, so they just backpedalled on it. But actually, I think the exciting thing is that Coleridge's faith and his literary criticism and his faith and his poetic creation are deeply interwoven. But it follows from that, of course, that it's not... The dull and conventional faith that it might be mistaken for you know coleridge uh, when the mariner comes back from his long sea voyage and says um, you know he prayeth best who loveth best all thing all things both great and small the dear lord who loveth us he made and loveth all he's saying look salvation and prayer is not just about dealing with your guilty ego and your personal jesus important as that may be nor is it even about mankind it's about the whole world that God made. Now, that is a message we really need to hear now. It was, it was too radical for the, for the 19th century. It may be too radical for us still, but one day it's going to be the only thing we live by. Do
0: you think the church is, is hearing that message, is receptive to that message?
1: I think it is. I, I think it is. I think the church has certainly... Lots of excellent work has been done in the last 20 or 30 years about theology and the arts. Uh, about theology and imagination about uh, a much more open non-judgmental careful listening to what is actually going on in works of artistic creativity and a willingness not to rush in with a quick bible text to fix it all but to listen and to discern the deep and in fact biblical themes that are going on so i think there's a lot of work there now that doesn't mean that theology capitulates and forgets about jesus very far from it it's about discerning the logos the word in, in 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 all things and i think coleridge is a pioneer that. Now I think it also has to be said, and you wouldn't get this from from some accounts of Coleridge, that Coleridge did also have what you might call a strong evangelical conversion as well, and a very strong sense of 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 um not that he would use that term as a piece of churchmanship about him, but I mean in the sense that he he really knew what it was to experience grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Um was there a particular
0: moment um, that um,
1: happened for him, C. S. Uh, Lewis style? Uh, yes, there I mean he was. There was a moment in the sense that, um, as you know, he he had to deal with a lifelong addiction to to, um, opiates and um, tried to do so many times heroically and tragically and with failure in his own strength. And he did get to a point of complete rock bottom and a, a real prayer of the heart and a sense that Christ needed to come in and work in him and with him in his heart in a way, not just in his head and uh, that sense of radical dependence upon the grace of god you know and um, you know his strength being made perfect in weakness very difficult lesson for someone of coleridge's immense powers and talents to learn you know it's sometimes men of great gifts have to fall even harder and more stupidly than other people in order finally to be persuaded by god to accept help and so he certainly went through that quite late in his life in around 1813-14 in a, a crisis that well, it was literally the end of 1813 beginning of 1814 in a, a crisis happily in a pub i have to say I kind of crashed out in a pub called the Greyhound with sort of massive opium addiction and survived rather than dying and in that survival he, he experienced what he called death or crucifixion descent into hell and resurrection and um, I think, therefore, his immense, already sophisticated theological knowledge was then grounded in a deep, radical personal conversion as well.
0: And did he articulate that faith in, a, in conventional ways? Uh, was he a communicant in the?
1: Yes, he he returned to to to. Um, to church he was a communicant i mean he was more of, a, of an attender of sort of evening prayer and, and morning prayer and he loved the, the prayer book liturgy but he certainly was a communicant i mean his in, i've read his personal annotations to the book of common prayer and there's a fantastic his annotation to the prayer book communion service he says the best and perhaps for me the only preparation for the mystery of this sacrament is to read the whole of john's gospel on my knees and then he talks about what he finds in the gospel, which is the logos that creates and sustains all things. It's very much that mariner all things. So he locates that communion as a communion in in the word that speaks the cosmos as well as the Jesus who died for me.
0: Can I ask you to- speak a a little bit about some of the Christian themes that you draw out of the um, the theological themes in the poem itself?
1: Well, this is the remarkable thing. The poem was written almost on the cusp between the Christianity he was brought up in and a kind of flirtation for a while with um, Unitarianism. In fact, he'd been asked to be a Unitarian minister and nearly became one. But chose to be a poet instead. And this was the first product of that choice in a way. So it's, he imagines the poem as being a, a ballad. You know, he sets it as a medieval ballad. So it's got sort of lots of surface Christian reference, you know, uh, um, and it has, it has, you know, never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. So it's got the, uh, the apparatus, but the deepest, deepest um, expressions for me of um, Christian truth about, fall and redemption come in the narrative itself of the, the mariner who commits the act of evil in, in, in a random act in shooting the albatross, who endures the agony of guilt, and who who is released by his ability to get out of himself and bless even what he thought was loathsome, bless the water snakes that he'd previously referred to as slimy things. But what's interesting is the subtle way in which he weaves deep biblical themes into it. So at the moment of release, after the rainfalls, when the mariner... Is able to get beyond himself and bless. He's previously been been he he speaks of his heart as being dry as dust. And when he's released and can pray, he talks about a spring of love gushing from his heart, which is very much the image almost of the woman at the well, about the fountain welling up within you. And that's followed very rapidly by the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And fire flags or fire in 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 the heavens so you get almost all the elements of spiritual renewal by the spirit of of the the inner stream and the big Pentecostal signs from from Acts 2 And it's remarkable how few commentaries even pick that up, you know, and yet it's almost direct quotation from Acts so he gives you clues in the imagery but he doesn't say, he doesn't lean over and piously say, and 17thly brethren, according to the 20th of the 39 articles, the following is the case. It's, it's much more worked out through the very action and the imagery. Are
0: there parallels with Bob Dylan there? I know you've written yes, uh, imagery uh, his songs. Which uh, yeah, I... I, I it back, also oh, that's that, oh,
1: very much so. I mean, uh, both Dylan and Coleridge... Are deeply, deeply soaked in the scriptures. So, even when they're writing apparently kind of surreal and weird poetry, it's actually full of, full of scriptures. I remember actually uh, one of my first efforts at writing poetry it wasn't that good, but when I was an undergraduate, I actually wrote a poem about uh, Coleridge and Dylan and about the kind of conversation between them in, in my ha- head. I think you know, of the Shaping spirit and the Wandering Jew, you know. So, and he, uh, Dylan, um, also they were both um, in love with somebody called Sarah. So lots of to go on, um, but I don't think either of them used the Bible as a set of proof texts. I think what they did was well. William Blake called the Bible the great code of art. That it's a living series of profoundly given symbols, and the art of the poet is to bring those biblical symbols out and then let them do their own work rather than teaching them what to do. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I really don't. I don't want to politicise this at all. But it's that way of reading the Bible? Could that inform some of the debates in the church today on various issues where you have a perhaps a proof texting approach to scripture? Other people take a more.
1: Mm, I think it could. As it happens, there's a little known book of Coleridge's, which I think is due for a serious new edition um, called the Confessions of an Inquiring Spirit, which is such hot stuff that it wasn't published during his lifetime. It was published afterwards. And it takes the form of a series of six letters to a young man about how to read the Bible. And it's extremely helpful. And he points out that you can't take a literal dictationist, you know, every word is dictated, every word is equally true, Yeah, because clearly the fool hath said in, the, in his heart, there is no God. Doesn't mean that the sentence, there is no God me you know, is true, it needs context. But he uses a very helpful metaphor. He talks about the Bible as landscape uh, through which you journey, that it has its peaks and its troughs, that it has deserts to cross, that it has sudden springs and oases. And that we shouldn't treat the Bible, the biblical narrative as flat. We should recognize the kind of terrain we're on, which I think is a very helpful metaphor. But he also locates scriptural authority in the appeal to the inner heart and the conscience. He said, I believe this text because it finds me. It finds me out. It reaches down into me and I need to let it do that. And in order to let it do that, I must be patient to what it has to say. I have to be open to its newness to me and not quick to rush to tell the text what I think it means. Um, so I think he's got a, a lot of wisdom for us. I mean, in terms of the, the, the current issues, I would say that uh, although he doesn't necessarily address some of them in a very specific way, if there's one lesson to be drawn from the rhyme of the ancient Mariner, it's that you cannot divorce prayer and love. You know, he prayeth best who loveth best all things, both great and small. The mariner's experience is having looked at something he thought was loathsome and discovered in a new light that actually it was lovely and part of God's God's plan. These water snakes, there may be some lessons for us there as well.
0: You've also said Coralge's Victorian successors looked down in judgment on what they saw as the shipwreck of his life. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you think there are poets or artists today who, who the church today might be ignoring or neglecting because of similar judgments. That oh, that's
1: a very good question. That's very interesting. Um, I think it almost certainly will be the case. Uh, and I think there are poets who have who have also felt repelled by the church, and it were and have held themselves at a distance, but who may well be writing things that are helpful to us i mean to take a somebody who certainly had a uh, lived through a kind of hell in his life and could scarcely be said to have made a success of it but who i think most people would recognize as a spiritual writer perhaps a coleridge of our time ted hughes now i mean ted hughes uh you could say is a kind of you know you could be orthodox and strict and say Ted Hughes is a bit of a neo pagan and you know kind of worships the earth and the the goddess of eternal being and that kind of things but cult ted Hughes without a doubt is waking up a secular materialist world to something spiritual underneath their very feet coleridge of course was also accused of being a nature worshipper and um, and yet there are there are moments i just recently uh, read a re uh, reread uh, a poem late poem of Ted Hughes called I think it's called That Sunday Morning or possibly just That Morning and it's about fishing in, in Alaska. And it's about a moment of complete transfiguration in which suddenly everything is golden, everything is lit from within. And it's not nature worship. It's a moment of the eternal glimmering and lucent in and through the temporal. It's a it's a vision that Coleridge would have absolutely recognized. And um in fact uh, Hughes was a bit obsessed with Coleridge and indeed with this poem, *The Ancient Mariner*. But he had his particular Hughesian way about it. He was so interested in the White Goddess that he was—he was actually more interested in the nightmare life and death as a figure than he was in in the Mariner. But Hughes might be an example of somebody, Larkin, curiously enough, who again, you know, appears to be contemptuous in his poem *Church Going*, but in the end gives one of the most beautiful accounts. You know, a serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blend air. All our compulsions meet, are recognised and robed as destinies. You know, the church could do with a bit of that. Uh, so, yes, I think there may well be artists that are out there that have been rejected and whose, whose work we will find we cannot do without.
0: How do you find being a, a priest and a poet, you know, in one sense, a teacher of the faith, a guardian of doctrine, mm. but also mm. someone who explores, is open yeah. to questions perhaps would play a prophetic yeah. role is there a, a tension there?
1: well there, there can be i mean i hope at their best they go together but one thing i've learned very quickly is that you cannot make the muse recite a catechism you can't sit her down and you know say i need everything you say to be theologically sound before i let you say it or she says well i'm gonna have fun elsewhere then aren't i you know i'm not she comes to you when she's ready and she gives you the images but i believe that she's blessed as much as you know any other of god's creatures and that uh, if i discern and wait then something will loosen will come out of me those but I also have before me very strongly the example of George Herbert who draws on the scripture and on the liturgy and almost has very not a great deal to do just to coax out of them the poetry that's already there and give it an even more lucid and memorable form and I don't take the sort of either ultra-romantic or ultra-modern view of the poet as the kind of strange, peculiar person in a corner who utters obscurely to themselves their own fractured vision. I mean, I think we've had enough of that. I think the poet is if you like, a little bit the shaman of the tribe, a little bit the servant of the community. And it's part of the poet's job to articulate on everybody's behalf as well and as lucidly and as openly as possible the half-formed thoughts of the community. And that's why in Sounding the Seasons, I'm really trying to write poetry that can reflect on the scripture or be in the liturgy and that anybody in any church can read and which is an invitation a lucid invitation to expression and participation on the part of a community. So if there's anything odd and weird in my mind that I'm when I'm writing a poem like that, which might be deeply significant to me, but only to me, I say, Well this is not the place for it. You know, I can write another personal poem, but this is a poem which is at the it's at the disposal of and intended to serve a wider community.
0: Is there something particular then about being a religious poet or a poet located in a religious community, who has obligations.
1: Well, I think I think there is. I think it has both both blessings and and pitfalls. I mean, the obvious blessing is that you've got this beautiful, rich material, and you've got already a poetic liturgy into which onto which to float your poems. You're not sitting in a lonely bedsit, you know, just hacking away at your Mac to no one in particular. You have a community to work with, and that's just the way Homer was, you know. And in that sense, it's like being an ancient poet. It's wonderful. The danger, of course, is that you end up writing trite religious propaganda and that you just, you know, you end up sort of with this awful thing that really should be on the inside of a tacky greetings card. And so you can go too far in the other direction. And a lot of modern poets are so frightened of that that they won't even touch this with a barge pole. I do believe that there is a way in between. I do believe that you you can be lucid without being trite. I take strongly the view that, I mean, anything that makes it possible for me to write poetry at all Uh, is is the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am, that they know more than I do, the images know more than I do. And I see my art as a poet as much more like arranging the tables around a sort of dining room and hoping to get some good conversation from my guests, who are the words, than knowing it all before it happens. So I don't include in collections or published poems that I think have got too much pre-design in them. Uh, if there isn't some element of gift or surprise to me, in the act of writing the poem, then I generally regard it as not being a keeper.
0: And I'd just like to ask about um, Lent coming up. Mm. You obviously have your. Um, I've got the the, the,
1: the the word in the wilderness. Yeah.
0: Um, trying for those thinking of how they can observe Lent or, mm. or develop themselves. It's well, the the poetry.
1: Uh, yeah, Coleridge has a wonderful phrase about what poetry does. He talks about how poetry awakens the mind atten- the mind's attention. And it removes the film of familiarity from the everyday and makes us see the depth. And that's not true. It's true not only of everyday objects, but it's also true of, if you like, church routines as well and Lent and going through it. That anthology, I have to say, it's not just my poetry. I mean, so uh, it's got a wide range of classic poetry from all over the place and some recent contemporary poets. And I tried to do literally a journey like the 40 days through the wilderness. It is a a journeying book and there's a poem for each day. And my, my hope is that it, it probably takes between five and ten minutes on a given day. And what I what I think people have found helpful about is simply that I as well as giving you the poem, I write a little essay, a little thing that opens it out and suggests some ways into the poem and just I think because a lot of not everybody's familiar with reading poetry and their mind isn't quite tuned in, people have found that very helpful. But I don't regard that of course as definitive. I regard that as sort of, you know, just opening the front door and Ushering people into the first room, and saying, I'm then saying, "Now, by all means, explore the whole house." i
0: was just thinking also about your your role as a, a priest and you're a chaplain pastorally. What you'd say to those who are considering their vocation? Can poetry help them discern where, and they have particularly on younger reasons, a lot of anxiety about like, where God wants me to be mm, and love
1: mm, of God does poetry
0: yeah. offer some perspective on that or
1: I think one thing I'd say, as soon as you ask to be in the will of God, you are the, in the will of God. I mean, every time you say, thy will be done, you're centering yourself again in that. And you're saying, let it be done in me. I do think poetry is helpful in that In that, I think all poetry involves a form of listening. I think you have to read a poem out loud to get it and the sound of it the tuning in and one of the things about poems is you listen and then you listen again you read it again and a little bit more comes out for you and I think there is a link between that kind of listening and the inner kind of listening which is about discerning vocation whatever that is a vocation to whether it's a vocation to priesthood I mean personally for me I think I had been uh, feeling a vocation and denying it to priesthood partly because I had such a sort of naff and limited idea of what a priest was and it was very much that sort of you know, kind of Derek Nimmo curate and have some tea vicar. And, you know, I was kind of had longish hair and rode a motorcycle and played in a band. And I thought it's obviously not me. Um, and in a funny way, poetry helped me there in that I became very, very enthusiastic about John Donne and Lancelot Andrews. Of course, they were both Anglican priests. And yet they uh, John Donne and George Herbert. Donne in particular was not your average have some tea vicar kind of vicar. And I think seeing John Dunn, actually, in terms of a role model, helped me a little bit to think that maybe maybe this was something I could be called to. I'm standing in St. Michael's Church, Highgate, on a pilgrimage to come to the mortal remains of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I'm standing just at the famous and beautiful stone where his epitaph begins, Stop Christian Passerby stop child of God and read with gentle breast beneath this sod a poet lies and which goes on to ask us to lift a prayer in thought for STC which I do and I also read this poem I wrote for him this sonnet which begins with the same words as his epitaph stop Christian passerby stop child of God You made your epitaph imperative and stopped this wedding guest. But I'm glad to stop with you and start again, to live from that pure source, the all-renewing stream, whose living power is imagination, and know myself a child of the I am, open and loving to his whole creation. Your glittering eye taught mine to pierce the veil, to let his light transfigure all my seeing to serve the shaping spirit whom I feel, and make with him the poem of my being. I follow where you sail towards our haven, your wide wake lit with glimmerings of heaven.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times Podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.